You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. On this episode, we listen to friends and colleagues Charlene Zhao and Susanna Sharpless talk about C19 gossip as a scholarly method and a little bit of fun, too. Hi, I'm Charlene Chow. And I'm Susanna Sharpless. And we're both PhD candidates at Cornell studying 19th century American literature. Obviously, we share academic interests, but we're friends too. And the idea for this episode happened when we realized that our friendship is shaped equally by our desire to tell each other about our research into 19th century women writers and our desire, or perhaps better phrased, our burning need to gossip with each other about graduate school. We started to ask ourselves how our relationships with 19th century figures were parasocial, allowing us to feel like these women were our friends or maybe our enemies. We wondered whether as scholars we should differentiate between the figures we love and the texts we choose to analyze. And then we started to wonder if maybe our desire to gossip wasn't only because we are petty busybodies, whether gossip itself could be its own scholarly method. So today, we're hoping to answer or at least better understand some of those questions. Before we get into it, I just really want to note that we're literally friends because of our desire to talk behind people's backs. I, for one, will never forget the first moment that we locked eyes when someone in one of our classes said something inane. I was like, oh, thank God. Now I can survive my graduate education. (laughs) I, I feel like this might make me a bad person, but I think that, no joke, this is how almost all of my closest and dearest grad school relationships formed. Yeah. I mean, we're all pursuing these degrees because we really care about scholarly debates, and those debates become social debates, and it's so crucial to be able to negotiate those tensions with people you trust. Yeah, anytime something happens, whether it's in class, a meeting, or online, I immediately text you. (laughs) Which I really appreciate. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have similar scholarly interests and a similar desire to talk about people. On one level, it's of course gendered, but on another level, it's epistemological. It allows us first to understand that 19th century women writers are interesting and important in their own contexts, and to criticize them for how their racism, their internalized misogyny, and their classism may have helped produce the things we complain about in our own lives. Yes, and there's so many fascinating relationships and dynamics in the 19th century, and Gossip is kind of a low-stakes way to get into it, to test out ideas, and to even challenge our instinctive reactions. It's really fun to parasocially talk about those women as if they're our friends, but I also think it's been helpful to, and I think this is just what good critique looks like, to take seriously what their beliefs were and what vocabulary they had available to them. Yeah, I think the approaches to the stories we tell in this episode really reflect that. Um, So maybe we should start by explaining our plan for this episode here, and note in passing that it's very much inspired by Normal Gossip, a podcast hosted by Kelsey McKinney, who tells gossip from normal people's lives to spellbound guests. But in order to answer our questions about how gossip functions in our academic work, we're going to take two different approaches to what we're calling scholarly gossip. First, you'll hear us talk about Rose Terry Cook, an author I am really fascinated with. My section is about reading something I really like and then feeling both incredibly betrayed and devastated when I learn more about the woman who wrote it, which I think is a fairly common feeling when you study the 19th century. Yeah, totally. 
So then we'll turn to my section, which is about a division in the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1839, and about the pleasure I take in reading about 19th century women who, for all their vaunted virtuousness, end up being delightfully rude to each other, (laughs) and then thinking about how that pleasure ended up enriching my dissertation research on Nancy Prince. It also made me think about how scholars incorporate biographical information we might term gossip in their work. Are you a snarky footnote person or a sneaky aside person? Or do you directly engage with scandal? Yeah. In my chapter now, I'm using the snarky footnote. But this podcast has made me want to more directly engage this story. Because really, what is the difference between gossip and doing historical research? Historians are fine with reading private letters or people's diaries. It kind of seems like the speculation we do when we read these things is what literary study allows us to read between the lines. So without further ado, let's begin with Rose Terry Cook. Rose Terry Cook was born in 1827 to a prominent Connecticut family. She wrote and published extensively in her lifetime, and she's most heavily associated with the regional short story and realism, much of which comes from a religious New England perspective. I wanted to talk about Cook today because last year I read some of her stories and really liked them for what I felt like was a very astute criticism of patriarchy and exploitative marriages in the 19th century. And then after reading about her life, I could not imagine writing about her without bringing in her biography, which I'm being careful not to spoil just yet. I'm pulling from a few different places for biographical material. An early biography of Cook comes from the book Our Famous Woman, where prominent women wrote biographies of other prominent women. Harriet Prescott Spofford writes the section for Cook. Then there's what is probably the most extensive biography of Cook, Jean Downey's 1956 dissertation on her, then Elizabeth Ammons' American Woman Writer series, and George A. Kennedy's Reader Companion. I also made a visit to the Hartford Historical Society. So, Susanna, what did you think of the stories I asked you to read for today? So, I read My Visitation, Mrs. Flint's Married Experience, How Celia Changed Her Mind, and Delhi's Cow. I liked them a lot. I thought that they were depressing, almost all of them. Because <laughs> there was, there were always marriages that were happy, I feel like. In a lot of the stories, like, there was the possibility of a happy heterosexual marriage, but then the focus was always how if you're old and you get married, you're just going to be miserable. And so it, like, <laughs> it made me wonder a little bit about what her animus was against these women. Yeah, so Mrs. Flint and Celia, I think, really speak to what you're saying. There are these stories about spinsters in particular, and I feel like Rose Terry Cook has a lot of sympathy for that figure, but you're right that it's very punishing what happens to them. She's very critical of the rigid and tyrannical husband, um, oftentimes a religious figure as well. Yeah, from, from my extended removal I was just like dang like this is a brutal world that Rose Terry Cook has created for me (laughs) (laughs) and I think it probably shows that she's pretty anti-divorce based on the fact that these women really cannot escape except through somebody's death Yeah, I was actually about to say that with Mrs. Flint, she's literally dying because her husband is essentially abusive to her. And like, all she can do is plead with the church fathers to forgive her. That just seemed like divorce would be such a better option. Literally starving her and there's not much she can do about it. Yeah. The frustrating thing about Rose Terry Cook is a lot of her critiques of marriage are incredibly true, but her solution for it often is that men and women just need to be better and more religious and cultivate each other's sort of spirit development, which feels very unsatisfactory. Yeah, the idea that the physical life is full of suffering, but you could 
compensated for it in spiritual life. And I do think there's something very darkly comical about a lot of Rose Terry Cook stories, which is sort of hard to say because they're often about these really terrible, tyrannical men. But the fact that Mrs. Flint's married experience ends with her saying, well, isn't it great that there's no marriage in heaven? (laughs) And her sort of refusal to mourn her husband. And when she receives everything to say, well, I worked for it is kind of delightful. Right. I know. I love that moment to wear bright colors to his funeral and say, yeah, I earned this money, you know? Yeah. And it, and it is an acknowledgement of domestic labor as labor. Right. Would you be disappointed to hear that she was firmly anti the women's rights movement and didn't think women needed the vote? <laughs> yes, I would be disappointed to hear that. <laughs> yes. No, that's a, that's a shame. Did she, did she explain herself or was it just instinctive? Yeah, in multiple essays. <laughs> Cook called the women's rights movement her strong-minded sisters. That's nice, at least. At least she had some sense of identification with them. Her proposal, I don't think it's that surprising. She said that if you were in a true good and holy marriage, which we should strive for, then it wouldn't be necessary. That's like a... That's a really good political position to just be like, well, if the world were perfect, we wouldn't need these politics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting for somebody who's obviously so aware of how economic decisions explain marital ones or like economic pressures explain marital decisions that she would still think that it was a problem for women to maneuver that way. It's, it seems bizarre and frustrating and I guess part of the 19th century that we oftentimes have to be yeah. frustrated with our yeah. authors like this. That's that's the very sad thing is we're going to see slowly how Rose Terry Cook kind of finds herself in a Rose Terry Cook story. Oh no. On April 16th, 1873, at 46 years old, Rose Terry marries Rollin S. Cook, a bank clerk from Winstead, Connecticut, and a widower with two daughters. He is 16 years her junior. Mm. Spofford describes this as a very harmonious marriage, saying they were, quote, completely complementary to each Mm. other. But the people who write about Cook, and I have to confess I also feel this way, are skeptical of that happiness, mainly because Rollin was not a great provider for the home. He had several failed jobs, which forces them to move. Her father-in-law made bad investments, which take a huge toll on their household. And all of this forces Rose to work extremely hard to provide for them. Uh, She was a very sick child to the point that there were times the family wasn't sure she would survive. uh, And she writes often in her letters as an adult of being ill or too sick. Mm. Rose's family was very against this union. They didn't feel like Rollin was her equal. (laughs) (laughs) And and to be honest, he he isn't, right? (sighs) Yeah, that's so grim. I feel like that's why you can't look to your favorite writers for examples of how to live your life in their lives necessarily. I mean, I guess if the world wasn't a complicated place full of conflicting pressures and allegiances, we would have nothing to write about. So it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I have two letters that she writes that I want to read to you, both of them to publishers after her marriage. So this one is um, an 1885 letter to a publisher. I ought to have answered your kind note of the 7th at once, but I have been for some weeks so busy and so full of anxiety and trouble that I delayed it. I cannot make any promise to write anything. If I could, I would. But I have always refused to do so chiefly on account of my health, which is liable to give way at any time and makes me a very uncertain person. And just now I have another reason. 
Mr. Cook's father has failed within the last 10 days, and thereby I have lost about a third of all I possess, indeed all my profitable property. And oh so my husband is out of business. You will see that the support of the family must fall on me till Mr. Cook finds work again, and in these days that may be a long time, therefore I must devote myself to boiling the pot and cannot take time for a book. Wow, it's really, I mean, it's like, it's like Mrs. Flint. I mean, not that Mrs. Flint was no artist, but her life just got taken over by drudgery. Yeah, and boiling the pot is in quotes in reference to her just having to write pot boilers. Basically, um, she's not able to write the kind of thing she really wants to. She has to write really quickly and efficiently for smaller publications Mm. for money. I see. Wow, that's that's also very depressing. So she had some great novel in her that she never got out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this next letter is, is the one that kind of refers to that. It's written in 1891, uh, just a year before her death. So this one is to an ed- editor at The Atlantic. One reason why I have not written for The Atlantic has been their long delay in printing. In writing as I have from daily necessity, you will understand that I had to write for papers and magazines that paid on acceptance. But I've always wanted to go back to the Atlantic, for I was one of the two women who wrote for its first number, and all my early successes were achieved in its columns. It is an old friend. Oh, it's interesting how all these prestige things, you know, really actually come down so often to having the resources to be able to write. Like, and I feel like that continues today in a lot of ways. Yeah, a lot. Most publications right now don't pay on acceptance. Yeah, right. Why would they? If at all. Yeah. I've actually never heard of such a thing. Seems like a very humane way to behave. You just spent like some time writing this article here. Be compensated. Yeah. And it's part of me that's like, even though she is firmly anti-suffrage, she's clearly really attuned to the realities of labor and and housekeeping and the everyday. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we do tend to sometimes overlook how intensely and deeply Protestantism informs these things, right? Like, if you truly believe that you and your husband are of one body, then I I think that becomes a really persuasive way to not feel like you need suffrage if your husband is voting on behalf of both of you. Yeah, like the idea of the wife as the helpmeet rather than the angel in the house, that the wife's duty is actually to be directly involved in supporting the husband and not just an ornament, (laughs) not just a force of love only, but like somebody who could actually like go milk the cow. Rose Terry Cook is an interesting figure. And I think one of the reasons I chose her is just not because I think there's any kind of gleeful gossip in this very sad life, but because I think it shows a lot of the ways that women in the 19th century made sense of these contradictions or what to us seem like contradictions and how what they look like in everyday life. Yeah. It's also interesting now thinking back to what you were saying about how so many of the villainous husbands are clergymen specifically. A person might be able to read that kind of anger as anger less towards the institution of marriage and more towards how the church mandated the institution of marriage or Maybe it's like she's making a specific pointed critique of the church and the clergy, whereas now we want to read it as a critique of marriage because of 
the world that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the main criticisms that that Cook has is actually for Calvinism and the sort of remnants of it. A really illuminating connection to me is John Greenleaf Whittier compares her to Hawthorne, and that's Mm -hmm. a comparison she's actually really happy about and really proud of, right? Yeah. So I have a few more quotes for you, and then um, we'll wrap up. Okay. So I think it's really hard not to feel very sad um, and possibly even a bit angry at how Rose Terry Cook's later years were spent. And I think that writing about Cook, it's hard not to comment on her marriage. And some scholars really can't help showing their disdain for Rollin Cook. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd read a few lines from critics to show you how they've approached the subject. So this is from Downey. Both Rose and Rollin Cook were apparently happy in their marriage. At least there is no statement by either which mentions dislike for the other. (laughs) For that matter, though, neither is there a statement available which mentions love for the other. Which (laughs) Yeah, that's really, that's the best thing someone can say about your marriage is they never admitted to hating each other. And to be honest, like there's this quote from Spofford. Spofford writes another little blurb about uh, Rose Terry Cook in a text called A Little Book of Friends. And her description of Rose Terry Cook's marriage here feels a bit less excited than the one from Our Famous Woman. She writes, His circumstances so excited her pity, that pity which is akin to love, that finally she yielded to his persuasion and became his wife. (laughs) (laughs) that's like one of those like 19th century sentences by women that makes you want to be like maybe you just don't like men at all you know (laughs) it's like we all we all know this the pity that turns into love you know (laughs) yeah Yeah, like that you would have for like that cow in her story (laughs) it also shows i mean just how how everything was understood through this prism of christianity if woman is supposed to be this holy maternal source of uncritical love then you maybe you would mistake pity for love from that understanding of what a woman's love should look like in general that's a very beautiful human emotion but you know i I wouldn't want my marriage to be based in pity that's for sure and here's the final quotation it's from ammons and i think it kind of says it all Spofford describes it as a blissful match, but we know that it brought Cook to financial ruin, forcing her to produce hackworth to keep her household running, and there can be little doubt that anxiety and pinched circumstances helped wear down her health and contributed to the pneumonia that killed her when she was 65. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that does seem to be the material circumstances of the case. Did her husband outlive her? Yeah, um, and he, this is kind of a really strange side note. Okay, he dies on December 10th, 1904, to injuries sustained in an accidental fire. Mm. Uh, so he dies painfully, if that's any cover. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I just think it's it's clear that a lot of feminist critics can't help but kind of hate Rollin Cook, right? There's, I, I think there's a very thinly veiled disdain for... Mm-hmm. him kind of trapping her in this marriage and just a lot of sadness at not getting the work that she might have produced if she had stayed a spinster or just married someone else. Yeah. I mean, just to speculate wildly and psychoanalytically, you know, for a woman to marry an incompetent man 16 years her junior and then have most of the relationship be about pity, <laughs> I think I can see what's happening there. <laughs> All right. So the other really weird and interesting thing that happens um, to Rose Terry Cook is that there are at least five known attempts by women to impersonate her. (laughs) That's really weird. 
I know. I mean, it might have been more common than we think because you can't really fact check identities in the 19th century as easily. That's really funny. But one happened in Pennsylvania where the girl said Rose Terry was a pen name taken from a cousin who died in childhood. Uh, this person boasted that she made $80,000 and used it all on educating poor girls. Wow. Um, and was generally such a problem that eventually Harriet Beecher Stowe pens a letter on behalf of Rose Terry to correct wow. the mistake. And Spofford writes, quote, This peculiar individual still holds a trusted position in a city charity and lives in a wealthy family as guide, philosopher, and friend, although the truth has been told to her clientele who persist in regarding her as a person wow. saint. It's just kind of funny because I don't really know what to do with the fact that women were impersonating Rose Terry Cook. Uh, Ammons says that these incidents likely speak to her popularity mm. as a writer, but I do think impersonation is another step further, too. You know, there's imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but impersonation is maybe some type of derangement. <laughs> Um, Okay, so here's the last bit, the truly last bit. I include this section to maybe speculate about what Cook might think about the conversation we're having about her right now. (laughs) Cook wrote um, an article for The Atlantic called The Memorial of A.B. or Matilda Muffin in 1860, so prior to her marriage. Um, And it's an article where she writes under the persona of a woman named Matilda Muffin, (laughs) who is a, quote, literary woman. And she's married to the Muffin Man, and she lives (laughs) on Drury Lane. (laughs) Um, Unknown, unknown, possibly. It's all speculation. Uh, it's, It's a sort of entertaining piece with some reflections on writing as hard work, but also about... Uh, what it means to be a literary woman, Um, and in there she writes this. But there is one thing against which I do solemnly protest and uplift my voice as a piece of ridiculous injustice and supererogation, and that is that every new poem or fresh story I write and print should be supposed and declared to be part and parcel of my autobiography. Good gracious. So I, that is to say, I don't think she'd appreciate the conversation we're having right now. I think she'd hate that we're relating her to her, the characters in her work. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. Like, what's more irritating than being like, I have this amazing imagination and I'm going to use it to imagine something else. And then just like two grad students come along and are like, let me admire you firmly in your historical circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think Rose Terry Cook is a great figure for examining what I think is a common impulse to find contemporary feminism in 19th century women, and then having that complicated, but also finding some sympathy there as well. Yeah, totally. Like, those are the tensions that I was thinking about, too, as I was preparing for my section. And so it was great to think about them in your context, you know, like, how do we approach women from the past in a spirit of generosity, but also not let them off the hook for what they actually said and did? And we shouldn't forget that these can be really fun conversations to work out with your fellow scholars. Right. Yeah. And I hope as we're going through this, it doesn't seem like we think we're better than these women. You know, we probably make analogous mistakes as hard as we try not to. (laughs) Yes, uh, constantly and apologetically. (laughs) So I'm really excited to dive into your section, Susanna. You've kept me in the dark about the specifics, but it sounds like we're going to be able to see gossip actually operating in this conflict within the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. Yeah, I was thinking that where you were giving us a chance to gossip in real time about Rose Terry Cook, 
I'm going to take us backwards to tell another kind of story, this time less about us judging past women and more about the impacts of them judging each other, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Um, So basically we're moving now from a woman who we want to be an activist, but who wasn't quite on the right side of history in terms of the women's rights movement to women who were activists, but maybe could have used a little more perspective. So let's turn now to the story I want to tell you about Nancy Prince and the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. As you know, the first chapter of my dissertation is on Nancy Prince, a Black woman who spent her life traveling, writing, and working to help Black communities in Boston and Jamaica. She is best known for her autobiography, A Narrative of the Life and Travels of Mrs. Nancy Prince, first published in 1850. In her recounting of her time in Jamaica, where she did missionary work, Prince describes having had a bit of a dust-up with a Jamaican woman about exegetical matters. She then goes to speak to their boss, an English missionary named Reverend Abbott. As she's explaining herself, someone in the conversation says, I do not approve of women's societies. They destroy the world's convention. The American women have too many of them. Prince's punctuation is really inconsistent throughout her narrative, so it's not clear whether this is her or the reverend talking, and I found the remark confusing and honestly a bit dismaying. Could this be Prince disavowing sisterhood? When I looked to scholarship about her for answers, however, I noticed that scholars are conflicted about who made this remark. So some think it was Prince speaking, and some think it was Reverend Abbott. Yes, many think it's self-evidently the reverend just being a misogynist instead of Prince expressing what might have been discontent with American womanhood. Honestly, I see both readings, so I kept looking because academically I wanted to solve the problem, but also the more petty parts of me wondered if this was an opportunity to find 19th century women who can sometimes be so sanctimonious behaving badly. Yeah, I feel like you and I talk a lot about the love-hate relationship we have to these sentimental norms of kindness and love and gentleness and delicacy. Yes, all of the above. Um, I think 19th century women felt the same way about each other sometimes. (laughs) So I looked up Prince's name in the Liberator archives. And what I discovered was what I asked you to read for today, the first page of a special section of the Liberator published on May 8th, 1840. Um, Would you please explain what this special section was about? Sure thing. So you sent me a page of the Liberator about the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, and I am honestly a little bit confused. It begins with their constitution, which is pretty straightforward for the most part. But from what I can tell, this suggests something major happened with the society after a clerical appeal in 1837 that seems to have created a lot of tension and prompted them to publish the special issue. I'm not sure what happened, but I know there's a lot of tension about fairs and voting, and at one point the phrase, on whomever the stone falls shall grind him to powder, appears. (laughs) Nobody says things like that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they should. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it sounds like you're noticing what I noticed, that behind all the confusing grandstanding about protocol and rules, something major befell the society between October 1839 and May 1840. Would you like me to explain it to you? Yes, please. Not like you have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) So the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society was formed in 1833. And according to historian Deborah Gold Hansen, moved very quickly from a symbolic organization to a powerful political presence. 
Towards the end of the 1830s, abolition as a movement was growing increasingly divided over William Lloyd Garrison's idea of immediate emancipation, which was the idea that enslaved people should be emancipated right away instead of gradually, as some more moderate abolitionists contended. A big part of this tension was about how or if women should involve themselves in abolition. Some more moderate members of the clergy had issued a letter bemoaning how abolitionism encouraged women to leave their appropriate sphere. And so the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society divided accordingly. On one side were women who agreed with Garrison, who thought women could get involved in political life without infringing on their Christian duty. Although this side included names most 19th century scholars would recognize today, like Lydia Maria Child and the Grimke sisters, for today the names I want you to associate with this faction are Maria Chapman and Thankful Southwick, best name ever. <laughs> Thankful Southwick is such a great name. It's a name you feel like can only exist in that specific time. I know, I love it too. And so those who opposed the Garrisonian group were led by a woman named Mary Parker. Mary Parker believed women could take an interest in abolition without, and this is a direct quote, losing the modesty and gentleness that are her appropriate ornament. And so the major names in this faction are Mary Parker, Martha and Lucy Ball, and Catherine Sullivan. Okay, so just for my notes, Parker faction is anti-Garrisonian, pro-Christian modesty. Yes, that's correct. And so let's call the other faction the Southwick faction in honor of thankful Southwick's great name. And also because as you'll see, she's a major player in all of this. So yes, the Southwick faction is pro-Garrison, okay with upsetting gender norms in the name of abolition. The Parker faction is anti-Garrison and wary of upsetting these gender norms. Got it. So where does Nancy Prince fit into all this? Yes, well, that is, of course, the question. Um, as you've noticed, <laughs> Prince is not among the chief belligerents here, but by her own account and the documents I sent to you, she was a member of this society and present at the meetings where these conflicts took place. Okay, cool. So as I was, like you, looking for her in this section, I kept thinking about how all this would have looked from her perspective. It's not immediately apparent in scholarship on the society how Black women understood their position in these disagreements. The more I read, the more I really started to think that Prince would have been alienated from how petty these fights became. For her, abolition was a vocation. She's really clear throughout her narrative about her Christian desire to, quote, do something for her community. And she had no trouble reconciling this attitude with her spirituality. Unlike white women who were letting norms of Christian propriety drive them apart. So your question is precisely the question I want us to keep in mind throughout this story. Where do Nancy Prince's loyalties lie? We'll eventually find her, but we have to let these tensions build to their boiling point first. Okay, great. Um, I'm interested in these tensions so far because it gives us a much more focused perspective on that famous Garrisonian schism. And it's an opportunity to see how these conversations are happening concurrently with the American Anti-Slavery Society split. The second thing I'm really interested in is I think this says a lot about the nature of organization in many ways, right? Um, so much of political organization in particular is in the details, in the paperwork, in the exhausting stuff that is a bit less exciting than the rousing speech. That being said, it's also the place where pettiness comes up no matter what, and I'm excited to see where this goes. So let's get into it. Um, so yes, as the Garrisonian conflict you're talking about was intensifying, on October 9th, 1839, the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society had an election at their annual meeting for a new president. Lydia Mariah Child nominated Thankful Southwick for president just based on the fact that she has a great name. <laughs> That's our girl. I am rooting for her. <laughs> yeah, on name alone. <laughs> then someone else nominated the previously mentioned decorous and gentle Mary Parker. I'm now directly quoting from the Liberator special section. 
Mrs. Child said that in the present state of the society, we needed to have an impartial president. She would say in all kindness and courtesy to Miss Parker that this was not the case at present. Miss Parker said she knew partiality to be her chief failing, and she was obliged to Mrs. Child for pointing it out, though she must say Mrs. Child could hardly have been more personal. Mrs. Chapman said that in this matter she knew nothing of persons. She wished we might go for principles. She repeated that she wished to know nothing of persons. Here Miss Lucy Ball, and Lucy Ball is a member of the Parker faction, exclaimed, Yes, you do, Mrs. Chapman, know persons. You think nobody is an abolitionist who does not think just as you do. You told us the other evening you did not consider us abolitionists. <laughs> Mrs. Child thought Miss Ball out of order. Miss Sullivan asked her to address the chair. That's exactly the kind of pettiness I was talking about. <laughs> Using meeting etiquette as a weapon. I also don't think that Parker was thankful for the note. <laughs> like, thank you for pointing out my chief failing. <laughs> I know. The politeness masks such aggression between these women. So they had a vote between Thankful Southwick and Mary Parker for president, and nobody could get an accurate count. Then basically the rest of the meeting descends into chaos with everyone saying, I have different counts. I counted this. I counted that. Why is everybody allowed to count? <laughs> Have one person count. I know. Well, I think technically only the secretary is allowed to count, but she's a staunch member of the Parker faction. So the Southwick faction keeps their own votes. And of course, the different counts favor different candidates. So the meeting just ends in confusion. They don't even know whether the meeting's been officially adjourned. They just leave. I mean, we've all been there, right? When the meeting has gone on so long and you're just so tired that you can't argue anymore. Right, exactly. You'll just say anything to get out of there. So they had their next meeting two weeks later, October 23rd, 1839, which is pretty unusual because they usually meet quarterly. Mary Parker read the minutes from the last meeting, and they say that she has been elected president. Mary Parker! (laughs) (laughs) You can't just do that. Right? So the Southwick faction says, no, you are not president. We haven't had a fair election. And Mary Parker says, well, we can't have a new election without approving the minutes from the last meeting, which say that I'm president. And the Southwick faction says, well, we won't approve them because they say you were elected, which you weren't. So they're just going back and forth like this. And then they start to accuse each other of not being committed enough to the cause of abolition. So I just want us to think at this moment about how this would have sounded to Nancy Prince, who, according to the Liberator, was at this meeting. And I bet she was probably pretty annoyed. Yeah, I can't imagine listening to the different factions accuse each other of not being committed enough to the interests of enslaved people and then pivoting right back into arguments about voting protocol would have convinced her that these women shared her priorities. Probably the discrepancy in the orders of magnitude would have been really aggravating. Yeah, I really like how you're thinking about this from Prince's perspective because it reminds us to think about who else is in these rooms at any given moment. You know, as valuable as these meeting minutes are for our research, they still oftentimes ignore the extent of who could have been in the room and who could have been gossiping about it afterward. Right. And like that never makes it into the minutes of these meetings, you know. So they have another vote. Everyone votes. Everyone again has different tallies. Again, I'm quoting from the Liberator. The ladies from all parts of the hall objected. Calls for the vote to be fairly taken were uttered from all parts of the room. One member refused to sit down, saying, I doubt the vote. And then Mary Parker responded, then you may doubt it to the day of your death. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Parker just being like, okay, then die. That's just an iconic line echoing through history. Mary Parker is really a character. Um, First of all, just trying to sneak in that she's president at the beginning of this meeting, as if that's going to work. (laughs) And it's just such an incredible image that this figure who is supposed to be the model of feminine comportment and general modesty is just yelling like, 
Sit down! <laughs> I know. I like it as a glimpse of the kind of viciousness these genteel norms can create. Um, so the meeting is adjourned, no president, no minutes approved, and the Southwick faction took out the following account in the Liberator. So I'll just read an excerpt to you. The following certificate places some of the officers of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society in a very unenviable position. There can be no doubt we should think after the testimony here furnished that Miss Parker was not constitutionally elected. And then they print below 82 names of people who are willing to go in print and say, I did not vote for Mary Parker, which means she didn't get the constitutional majority that she needed. And so this is how we know Nancy Prince was here getting fed up with at least one faction. She is one of the 82 women willing to go in print and say, I did did not vote for Mary Parker, and I do not approve these minutes. So much of this seems so petty and misguided, but is also so funny. <laughs> can you can you imagine being willing to print your name after an anonymous election to be like, I hate you so much, I don't need to be anonymous anymore? I know, things are getting really vicious in those newspapers. However, it seems like in November, December, there was a sort of detente and nothing happens. I would love to know what they were up to. Well, I mean, you know the parties were amazing that winter. <laughs> Definitely. So in January 1840, they have another meeting. They talk over each other the whole time. The meeting ends with no vote, no vote on the minutes. Then they meet again April 8th, 1840, and once again try to ratify the disputed number of votes. And then Mary Parker says, Catherine Sullivan has an important announcement. And Catherine Sullivan reads the following, which I'll also excerpt for you. Whereas for some time past, the harmony of this society has been disturbed and its usefulness impeded by differences of opinion and feeling resulting from causes not anticipated in its formation. And moreover, as these differences are unavoidably the occasion of injury to the cause of the slave, which we all have at heart, therefore resolved that the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society be, by the act of adjourning, dissolved. Well, that is a real disappointment. Um, I... I guess I'm not too familiar with the etiquette or if it really matters at this point, but are are they allowed to dissolve the society if they haven't been voted in as president officially? That's exactly what everyone's asking. They're quote unquote astonished. Somebody says, what are these differences? Isn't it literally just you guys? And the Parker faction keeps saying, no, these are differences which are bad for the cause of the slave, like writ large. Everyone's standing up and arguing. And at this moment, Nancy Prince comes back into our story. She says she thinks, quote, the movers of this resolution had better go off from the society. I just love the clarity of this. Everyone's arguing about protocol and order and the power that people have to do certain things. And Prince is like, look, no one's making you be here. If you guys don't want the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society to exist, you can literally just leave. Um, just as a side note, like uh, I feel like it's a really familiar turn where one person acts really badly and then they write in the passive voice, right? The harmony of the society has been disturbed. It's like, by who? Right. Who disturbed <laughs> yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really suggests how much abolition was probably peripheral to the reason these women wanted to get elected. Right, yeah. So Prince is one of many disgruntled voices in the room. And so, you know, her comment is in there, but it's not definitive. The disagreements continue. And the Parker faction is like, look at this. Isn't it obvious why we wish to dissolve? And someone who the author of the special section thinks is Mrs. Prince, but can't quite make out clearly says yes plain enough why some wish to break us up it is because they cannot be officers 
So again, just another direct, simple call. Instead of these moments where white women are using slavery as a wedge to accuse each other of not being selfless enough, to Nancy Prince, it seems obvious they just want to dissolve the society because they can't be in charge of it. It seems like from what must have been a more marginal position for her, she can see that this is an opportunity for these women to have social power that they're being denied and that that's the function of the society for them. Yeah, 100%. It's this idea of, do you really care about using these rules or do you just get a kick out of being the person? Person who gets to enforce them. I also really like, like you said, that this is a comment that's just overheard. Like Prince is not playing this etiquette game of who gets to speak in what order. She's just had enough. Yeah, exactly. And even though Prince is obviously being heard, like her comment is recorded or, you know, supposed to be her, presumed to be her, she's not really in a position of power. And Deborah Gold Hansen notes that even though many Black women did belong to the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, the society struggled to fully integrate its Black members into its proceedings. This comment seems to support that reading. All we really know about Prince's role in the society are these two comments from her in the moment of its dissolution. And both of the comments, I think, kind of suggest a real disinterest in or maybe even alienation from the issues playing out here. Yeah, which also says a lot about what and who these people think is worth paying attention to. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking about that a lot because it seems ironic to me that Prince suggests the Parker faction leave the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. But actually, in November of that same year, 1840, Prince leaves Boston um, to head to Jamaica for the first time. And so... I wonder whether her disconnect from these disagreements speaks to a larger struggle to find community in the United States. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it sounds like it wasn't that much better in Jamaica. Yeah, like I mentioned in the beginning, she was having conflicts with a lot of the people that she had hoped to work with. But in those confrontations, in her narrative, she shows the exact same willingness to stick up for herself and her beliefs that she displays in these meetings. And so while we're thinking about that beginning moment, I also have to admit, I'm still not really sure who made the comment about the women's societies and the American women having too many of them. What I do understand now, having looked at the Liberator, is that Prince chafed against the norms of femininity no matter where she went. And I think this really deepens a claim a lot of scholars make about Prince, that her narrative rejects sentimentalism. When I imagine her in these meetings, I'm able to understand that this rejection may have had as much to do with what happened in Boston as what happened elsewhere. And I can see 19th century social reform from the eyes of someone less interested in social climbing than in the problem of racial justice. So Charlene, you mentioned at one point when we were recording my section that you admired the women in the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society for sticking it out despite all the tensions. Yeah, I had said something like, well, they're fighting, but at least they're still there. Um, And then you broke the news that they actually did dissolve, which was very disappointing. But I was thinking of a protest I'd gone to a few years ago when a huge argument broke out in the middle between one of the organizers and one of the attendees, and it really took over the entire event. But afterwards, a woman went on stage and she said, if you're going to let imperfect anger, female anger specifically, deter you from coming back, then you aren't really interested in the people we're advocating for. You know, it's easier to say, well, this feels disorganized and walk away than to actually engage with the hurt and messiness of a collective. And I think being honest about those human emotions and recognizing that you can't neatly separate them from social change is something I took away from that. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And it also gives me a chance to clarify that the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society didn't actually dissolve. Um, You know, for all Mary Parker's scheming, all Maria Chapman needed to do was stand up and say, we're just going to meet next week. Um, So the society continues. That just shows that a lot of women were obviously not scared off by the female anger you're talking about. They were able to minimize their interpersonal tensions in the name of what they felt was a more important cause. And, And this is an aspect of the story that maybe got lost in my gleeful recounting of the more petty parts. (laughs) That is really great to hear. I'm working through why I felt kind of guilty during our recording. I I think it's one part guilt that we're laughing at a failure of solidarity that has real consequences, something that showed up in both our stories. Um, It's one part guilt that we might not have the whole story, but we're providing a reading of it anyway. And another part that we are indulging a very petty part of ourselves, which is maybe not the most amazing form of (laughs) self-cultivation. Um, So I I wanted to know if you felt the same. Did you feel guilty when you were digging through the dirt? Yeah, it's a really good question. I did feel guilty. um, And I felt guilty a little bit when I was telling you the story because I felt like I was minimizing the fact that some of the names that I kept more peripheral to my story, like Lydia Mariah Child or William Lloyd Garrison, were actually hugely significant actors in the fight for abolition and lived to see their cause accomplished. But I also think, as I said, that those interpersonal dynamics can complicate our ideas of femininity's role in all this, and that for both of us, you know, as we are also complicated women who exist in power structures beyond our control, we can just identify with the anger and frustration and the sadness in these stories, and that that identification can be a way into more serious questions about the histories of social reform or the utility of organizing or of gender more broadly. Yeah, it's interesting to gossip about history because the fear of gossip and regular life is that you'll be outed as a gossip. But when we do it with the 19th century, we have to then really evaluate our relationship with past women and think maybe a bit more collectively. Yeah, this actually makes me think of your love of Rose Terry Cook, because I think you're really able to grasp the way that these 19th century discourses of power work, whether it's the church or compulsory heterosexuality, you come to the text with an attention to how these discourses function. You know, maybe that explains your ability to find it funny or telling, despite what happens on the page, when Cook's characters enable us to perceive those structures and therefore to critique them. I think that's super fair. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I really wanted to end on Matilda Muffin because it felt like giving Cook a chance to have the last word. Um, which is, of course, how you win an argument. (laughs) Also, there's definitely some baggage I'm bringing to this conversation since I've never kept a journal in my life out of fear that someone will read it. It's always so devastating to hear a historical figure burned all their notes and letters, but that's 100% what I would do. (laughs) That's really funny because I'm the exact opposite. And literally the first journal I remember keeping, the first page I wrote on it, this is the journal of the genius Susanna Sharpless. For, for future readers. Um, but, you know, I think when they study the both of us in 200 years, they're going to need to know who said what in our graduate student meetings. You know, we owe it to those scholars, Charlene, to write that down. <laughs> we do, we do. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We are a production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. If you enjoyed this episode or have thoughts, use the hashtag C19podcast on Twitter or get in touch with us at C19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? For details on submitting a proposal, check out our CFP on the C19 website.